Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much, Rod. Excellent reading. All right, so I hope you've all been taking the opportunity during this uh, series to memorize all six components of the armor of God. You know, keeping these things in the forefront of our minds, they are going to absolutely help keep us in the battle, keep us equipped for the battle. And we've been in a bit of a battle recently against the cold, against this deep freeze. But let me encourage you, the days are starting to get a little bit longer. Um, we're about we're about halfway through the winter. And myself personally, I can't stand the winter. I don't know what I'm doing in Maine. I, I love the warmth of summer, love the sunshine beating down on my bald head. Um, and I know you're looking forward to the summer too. So let's just take a brief uh, mental vacation through time and space together somewhere warm. Uh, don't worry, this isn't going to get weird or anything, but let's, uh, let's picture ourselves in a small town. It's called Centerville, Virginia. And Centerville is a very, very small town. In fact, the number of people in this room uh, exceeds the population of Centerville. The, uh, the year is 1861, and it's a warm, dry, sunny Sunday morning in July. It's, it's just a wonderful day. And the biggest event that this small town has ever seen is starting to to take shape. Uh, there's pies cooling in windowsills, uh, picnic baskets are being packed, and vendor stands are popping up by the side of the road to sell food to all the visitors that are pouring into town. Uh, it seems like everybody is on a holiday. People are coming from as far away as Washington, D.C., which is a seven-hour carriage ride away. There's big city reporters in town. Politicians are here. Thousands and thousands of people are arriving in Centerville on this warm, sunny day. But they're not there for a carnival. They are actually there to witness the, the green recruits of the Union Army who are marching out bravely into battle. And what the sightseers there in Centerville, what they all assumed would be a short, small, relatively bloodless skirmish, uh, today we remember that day as the Battle of Bull Run. It was the first major battle of the Civil War, and nobody anticipated the scope of destruction that was about to unfold. Uh, so that day, it ended with the panicked picnickers fleeing over 5,000, almost 5,000 dead and wounded. And sometimes I think we're just a little bit like those picnickers. We're so concerned with sunshine and pies and the day's entertainment that we become blissfully unaware of the spiritual battle that is actually raging all around us and threatening to consume us. And that's the way that the devil wants it. The devil, he is an amazing battle tactician. He's the master of deception. He would love for us to absolutely forget the truth that we are immersed in a spiritual battle. He would love for us to forget how powerful of an adversary that he is. He would love for us to believe that all the Bible's teaching about him, about Satan, is the stuff of myth. It's the stuff of legend. Uh, superstitious stories that have no place in our new enlightened modern world. Now, it's been said that the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he does not exist. Or maybe at least convincing us that we're not engaged in a battle, even as the bodies pile up all around us. Now, in our modern age of comfort and distraction, doesn't it make sense that the devil would want to keep us, his enemies, distracted and not aware that we're even in a battle? And I think the devil would prefer 
even to see us worldly and contented if only our contentment meant that we would ignore the fact that we're in a raging battle where he seeks to devour us. But God, thankfully, he won't let us forget. He sounds the battle alarm and he names the enemy. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this verse, it's a reminder from God that we have no option of opting out of this battle. For the Christian, there is no safe sideline where we can watch others do battle. And the devil, he would rather see us on the sidelines, sitting down, eating pies, and watching from what we think is a safe distance until he overruns us and devours us like a roaring lion. But God wants us to be prepared. He wants us to be vigilant. He wants us to be well-equipped for war. So he tells us, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So there's a battle coming. And and Paul, he wants us to be strong. But he doesn't tell us to be strong in our own strength. He, He doesn't tell us to buck up and stand tall because we're so mighty in ourselves. But Paul tells us instead where our strength comes from. He says, be strong in the Lord. So the Lord is the one who is strong, not us. Now, if I told you that I'm bulletproof, you know, you would laugh, of course. Uh, rightly so. I can't stop a bullet. But if I'm wearing a Kevlar vest, if I'm wearing body armor, then yes, in a sense, I'm bulletproof. But only because I'm wearing body armor. So God has made us spiritual body armor available for us to wear as well. Now, last week, Pastor Brent told us about the, the, um, the belt of truth. And this is the unchanging, unmoving, rock-solid truth that God anchors everything in place. God uses to anchor it all in place. And, and it keeps us nimble. It keeps us mobile. And it keeps all our weapons accessible for the battle. It's like a belt that holds it all together, that we can tuck it all in. Now, today's military soldiers, they're issued, they're issued what's called an LBE. And LBE stands for Load-Bearing Equipment. Because it's the army, they can't do anything simple. They can't call it a belt. It's load-bearing equipment. And it really does bear a load. I mean, try, try carrying two one-quart canteens, which would fit on your hips, um, a first aid kit, uh, a collapsible shovel, a compass, six 30-round magazines, and four grenades. That's what a standard LBE comes equipped with. Imagine carrying all that in your hands and stuffed in your pockets into battle. You can't do it. But when a soldier is wearing his belt, his LBE, he has all that available to him so that he can move freely and engage the enemy. So when we attach the belt of God's truth to us, everything we need for the battle, it's readily available to us. Now in the army, you can't get away with customizing your LBE. It's not a subjective thing. Uh, You can't fill your canteens with Mountain Dew. You can't fill your ammo pouches with M&Ms. You can't exchange your compass for for AirPods or anything like that, the arrangement of your LBE, it's not something that you can pack based on what's important to you. Now, the equipment, it's been designed, it's been tested for battle by somebody higher up the chain of command than you are. So you're not free to follow your own preference when equipping for war. And in the same way, the truth 
in the spiritual battle, the truth of God, it's not a subjective thing. Truth is God's truth, regardless of our own experience or preference. So when we enter into battle, we're not relying on our best wisdom, on our experience to see us through the fight. When we march into battle, we are only successful if we follow the orders of our infallible commanding officer, who is, of course, God. Now, if you're anchored in God's truth, our weapons and our armor, they will not lose their power. And conversely, if we're not anchored in God's truth, we have no authority. We have no power. You can't stop a bullet with a nerf shield, and you can't fight a spiritual war with counterfeit truth. So the effectiveness of God's armor is tied to God's truth. And we talked about the breastplate of righteousness also. It's the truth that God has accepted Christ's righteousness on your behalf. And he's not only accepted it, but he's given it to you. He has outfitted you with it for the battle. So he's taken our own good deeds, which is the best armor that we could ever provide for ourselves, which the Bible calls filthy rags, by the way. So would you wear dirty rags into battle and expect it to keep you safe? No. No, instead, God has outfitted us with a pure breastplate of righteousness that can withstand any attack. And you're going to need it because the devil, he is the accuser. And we are sinners. We're going to give the devil occasion to accuse us. And because we're guilty of sin, we can't deflect his accusation on our own. His blade, it's just going to slice through that wretched garment of our own righteousness like a hot knife through butter. But God doesn't leave us defenseless. Instead, we can put on the invincible breastplate of Christ's righteousness. So Satan can accuse you, and he will, but he can't pierce through the armor. There is no weak spot. Christ has never sinned like we have. And that's the armor that's offered to you. It is Christ's goodness instead of your own. Now, you can reject that armor if you want, but there's no reason other than pride in your own inflated sense of self-righteousness to walk around in enemy territory in a battle wearing your own weak armor. So when you visit the armory, check your pride and ask for Christ's righteousness to be your own. Now, when we are properly equipped, we can stand in the battle We don't need to fall back. We don't need to give ground to the enemy. And Paul expresses this steadfastness as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, in this image, the gospel of peace, it's like cleats that a Roman soldier would wear so that he could stand his ground and he could press forward. Now, without proper footwear, a soldier would end up on his back and would be quickly uh, dispatched. Now, this, this week, uh, Pastor Brandy challenged me to come up with a, a personal illustration for this sermon. Now, I'm almost certain that he meant personal to me and not to him, uh, but he didn't specify, so I'm going to take advantage of that ambiguity here and tell you a story. Um, I'll change the name to protect the identity. We'll call him Trent, and <laughs> he's a man living through a main winter, and he went out to his barn to to fiddle with the generator in the middle of the snowstorm. And he was wearing his sneakers. And the next thing you know, bam, he's on his back and he's in an arm brace. So we can learn from Trent's experience that pumas are not the correct footwear to do battle in a main snowstorm. You're going to end up on your back. And sometimes it even helps to have a visual aid 
to illustrate the point. So we have these here. You can see there's little cleats on the bottom that will keep you from... I know what I'm getting you for your birthday. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Moving on. If this happens to be my last week with you here, let me say that it's been a privilege. <laughs> um, yeah. So there is peace. There's peace knowing that our feet are firmly secure beneath us. You know, the Super Bowl is coming up. So imagine... Um, a goal line stand, these two teams just doing battle on the line of scrimmage, just trying to push. They're just leaning in. They're pushing because they have their feet underneath them. They're not going to slip out so they can take ground. They can stand firm. Now, there are multiple aspects of the security and the stability that we find in the gospel of peace. Now, first is the peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we were at one time enemies with God because of our rebellion, because of our sin. But we've been justified, which means that we have been made right with Christ. And so we're not under God's wrath anymore. Now we are at peace with the most powerful being in the entire universe. I remember when I was a little kid, um, I, was, it, I was 11 years old, and the, de- the, uh, the first Desert Storm War was unfolding. Some of you may remember Saddam Hussein. He invaded his tiny neighbor, Kuwait, and we were getting involved to defend our, our ally and to defend our interests in the Middle East. Uh, like I said, I was about 11 years old, um, so the ground losses of the war in Vietnam, that was before my time, um, the long, ruling war on terror that was yet to come. So what I was seeing on TV, that was my only perspective on war. That was my only experience of what it was to live in a nation that was at war. And I remember watching the the footage on the nightly news of seeing miles and miles and miles of Saddam's tanks just decimated, just blown up, sitting in a row, smoldering. And in my 11-year-old mind, I was perfectly secure in the knowledge um, which was really a false knowledge that I was in unlo- that I was aligned with a invincible superpower. There was no possibility in my mind that Saddam could ever take the fight to our shores. You know, I was on the winning side, and by virtue of being an American, I would never have to be on the receiving end of a shock and awe campaign like I was seeing being rained down on our nation's enemies. And that feeling of peace, that feeling of security that I had from being aligned with an earthly power, it's just a shadow, it's just a hint of the real and permanent security that we can all have in Christ because we are no longer enemies with God. But not everybody can claim that security. You know, we cannot forget that God's wrath will still be poured out on his enemies. It says in Psalm 97 that fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings, they light up the world. The earth sees and it trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. So one day the Lord will unleash a shock and awe campaign like nothing else we've ever seen but we won't be on the receiving end of that because that's our army. That's our nation. That's our general. And this is peace with God. You don't need to fear his holy wrath because it's been poured out on Jesus Christ in your place. 
You don't need to fear his holy wrath, but only if your sins are forgiven. Peace with God comes only through the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, he gives his disciples a picture of what it looks like to have peace with God at the Last Supper. Now at the Last Supper, Jesus took the bread that was at the table and he broke it into pieces. He told them that like the bread, his body would be broken for their sake. And then Jesus took the wine and he told his followers that his blood would be poured out like wine. And this has to happen. He bleeds for us because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So if I could have the the worship team come up, we'll get ready for, for communion. Now, we need his blood shed for us, his blood instead of ours, because we need a savior. It's his broken body and it's, and it's his spilled blood that is the redemption price, the price of peace that we need to have to enter into this new covenant of forgiveness. Now, we don't have to earn our forgiveness. We can enter into his rest. We can enter into peace with God, but only through the forgiveness that Jesus has purchased. Now, this past Friday, um, one of our dear sisters in the faith has passed into this final rest. She has finished her battle because she has peace with God through Christ. Um, I'm talking about our dear sister, Bernadette Parody. Um, she has finished her race well. And many of you know it wasn't an easy one for her. She had a very heavy burden to bear, uh, lots of pain, lots of loss that she's experienced through his life. And she just finished her long battle with ALS. But Bernadette, she was faithful, faithful to the end. Uh, Bernadette made peace with God long ago, and now she's healed. Uh, she is made whole after her long battle. And if you are in Christ, you have that same hope. You have that same peace. So the communion that we are about to share in, it's a way to remind ourselves, to bring to remembrance that we have peace with God through Christ. Now, on the other hand, if you don't yet believe that Jesus is your only peace, if you are here today as a seeker looking to hear more, um, if you haven't bowed your knee to God, then let the bread and the juice pass as they come to you. But I'd invite you to take the time, use the time of song that we're about to hear to pray, to prayerfully consider the gift of peace that Jesus Christ offers to you today. Now, we all come to a point in our lives when it's time to lay down our arms, time to stop contending with God, to ask for peace and to surrender to his lordship. Freedom and victory, they come only through surrender. George Matheson, he described peace through surrender like this. He said, make me a captive, Lord, then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword and I shall conqueror be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within your arms and strong shall be my hand. Now, is there something that you need to surrender to the Lord today? Confess it in prayer. Ask God for forgiveness. Believe and repent and let the mercy and the grace that you experience wash you clean. Find your peace. Now, because we have this peace with God through the forgiveness of Christ, we can now experience the peace of God. 
Uh, during the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So this is the peace of God that Jesus gives to all who follow him. It's the same peace that lets Jesus fall asleep in the middle of a, in a boat in the middle of a storm. Now this is the same peace that lets Jesus keep his calm under the interrogation of Pilate before the cross. And this is the peace that we can have in all circumstances of life. These, this peace that makes no understanding, makes no sense to those who don't have it themselves. And Paul, he refers to it when he says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is the peace and the confidence that we have that allows us to stand firm. It's the peace of God that we have. It's like cleats for our feet that allows us to resist the attacks of the enemy and to press in and to take ground, knowing that we have an all-powerful heavenly general who will not abandon us, who will not lead us into a war that we can't win. God wins the war so we can be at peace during all the battles. And remember, when you meet your enemy in the battle, remember that we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So it may seem like you are doing battle with a fleshly enemy, looking eye to eye with a person, but people, they are not our real, our true enemy. So suddenly, when we meet them on the battlefield, we are no longer soldiers. Instead, we are ambassadors. We are diplomats representing the one who sent us, bringing an offer of peace from our king. And we can share stories about how we were once his enemies, but we have made peace with God through the sacrifice of Christ. Now, Christ, he died to make peace with his enemies. He died to give them new life. So who are we to hold back that message of peace? Now, we are his ambassadors, so we represent our king's grace, even during the battle. It says in 2 Corinthians that all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So who says that kind of things to their enemies? Who offers peace to those who oppose us? Well, we do. We are ministers of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. And not only do we tell our enemies about our king's offer for pardon, but we offer our enemies a place next to us in the battle if they would only receive our king. And that's how the church grows. God makes his enemies, his sons and daughters, through our appeal. So we can't forget that we are not at war with people. We march into the battle to offer peace. And it says in Romans 10:15, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But Satan, our real enemy, he will not make it easy on us. And that's why we need what's called the shield of faith. Now, Satan has a variety of arrows that he's going to launch at us. Discouragements, uh, deception, accusations. 
Satan is not new to the battle. He knows how to take his enemies out of the fight. And Satan, he launches fiery temptations at us. Now, we have these desires that are within us that are easy to ignite. Temptations towards materialism, towards selfishness, uh, degrading lusts, temptations towards pride, all those things, they are lobbed at us constantly. And if we're honest, often we enjoy the heat from those temptations. Temptations are called temptations because they are tempting. So there's no need to lie about it. There's no need to pretend like temptations aren't appealing. They are. And they are appealing because Satan takes something good and he twists it into something corrupted, something sinful. For example, he would take our dependence on God and he tempts us towards the pride of depending on ourselves or depending on money. Or he takes the beautiful intimacy that was designed for marriage and he tempts us towards all kinds of debased expressions of that intimacy that God had originally created for good. In our sinful, our unredeemed nature, it responds to those burning temptations. But by faith, we can extinguish them. By faith, the power of sin can be broken. Now, the Roman soldiers, they would prepare for battle by soaking their shields in water overnight. They did that because they fully expected to face a barrage of flaming arrows coming their way the next day. And they did. And the arrows, they would thunk harmlessly into their shields with a sizzle because the damp shield would put out the flame. So the soldier, he doesn't go into battle without preparing for the kind of combat that he is facing. And in the same way, our preparation for the spiritual battle, it needs to be as specific as possible. So we have faith in God. Shield of faith. You know, that's great. But... How does your faith speak specifically to the battle that you know you are going to be facing? So if you know your weak spot is trusting in money instead of God, well, guess what? The devil knows that too, and he's going to attack you accordingly. So for you, the preparation, the act of soaking your shield is to meditate on how your faith speaks to the issue of money. Something like 1 Timothy 6, 6, 17, which reads, As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. So God's word, it gets to the heart of the issue, and it teaches, it reminds us where true life comes from, and it doesn't come from riches. So your faith in that specific arena of God's truth, that's what extinguishes the flaming arrows that would tempt you towards idolatrous materialism or depending on riches for your life. Or another example, if your weak spot is lust, then your preparation is to meditate on how God's word speaks to that issue. Something like 2 Timothy 2.2, which says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So here, God's word, the preparation, it tells us to turn, to flee from those evil desires, and instead it points us towards what is healthy to pursue, faith and love and peace, along in the company of those 
who call on the Lord with a pure heart. So whatever battle you are going to face, be prepared with the word to extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy. And that's exactly what Jesus did when the devil tempted him. You know, Satan, he tempts Jesus with hunger. So Jesus answers, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the father's mouth. Or Satan tempts Jesus to throw him off the temple so that um, he can prove that he's the son of God. And Jesus says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Or Satan tempts Jesus with the world's splendor. If Jesus would just worship him, Jesus responds, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Jesus is prepared for the attack. He knows what he's going to face, and he resists it, and the devil retreats. Jesus resists the devil with the word of God. That's how we resist as well. So just like a soldier preparing for battle by soaking his shield, Christians need to soak in the word of God to prepare their faith for the flaming arrows that are going to come our way. So if your shield of faith is dry and neglected, it's not suitable for battle you're going to get burned. Now, when we take up the shield of faith into battle, we can also provide cover for others. The The shield that the Romans had, they were like doors almost. They were four feet high and about two and a half feet wide, and they were made so that they could be linked together. In the front rank of soldiers, they would no longer have to take shelter just behind their own individual shields, but they could form this protective wall that could stop the arrows of the enemy archers. They could move together in position side by side as one, providing protective cover for their fellow soldiers, stopping all the flaming darts that were raining down around them. And that's what it is to be a church that covers each other with prayer. That's what it is to come alongside someone, cover their weak spot, their exposed flank, because nobody goes to war alone in the church the fellowship of believers that we have, it provides safety, it provides encouragement for the battle. And that's the kind of thing I see happening all the time at the church. I hear stories about sponsors and celebrate recovery, uh, prayer partners, accountability partners, friends, small group members, all looking after one another, shepherding each other, having each other's backs. I love to see that. But... It's not always the case. You know, we are, we're human. We let each other down. And I have a, a story about my time in the, the National Guard when, when I let my buddies down in, in battle. It wasn't real battle. I never saw combat. Um, but I served as an anti-tank infantryman in the Army National Guard. Um, and we would simulate combat. You know, once a year we would do war games. In my company, we would divide into two platoons, the good guys and the bad guys. Of course, you know, I was the good guys. Um, and my responsibility as a gunner, it was to target enemy tanks and, and destroy them with a wire-guided missile that was fired from the top of a Humvee. And all our weapons and vehicles, they were equipped with lasers and sensors so that we would know if we had destroyed the enemy or if we got taken out. It was a multi-million dollar game of laser tag, essentially. And as fun as that sounds, it was, it was a little bit nerve-wracking. It was stressful. Um, we would move and communicate um, with the other squads, all the while looking out for the enemy and trying to engage them. And nerves were pretty high because our scouts had reported that there was enemy activity up ahead under the power lines. So we're looking in that direction, and we see a Humvee just tearing down the path towards us. Um, they see us. We see them. 
Uh, my turret tw- turned towards them and their turret turned towards us. And poof, I get the shot off first. Um, I light them up, target destroyed, high fives all around. And later that day, we're doing our debrief after the mission. I'm talking to all the other squads on my team, the other guys in the Humvee, the other good guys that were working with us to defeat the bad guys, uh, sharing stories of how we did, talking about who we eliminated or how we got eliminated. And this one squad was sharing their story of how they were moving into position under the power lines. You know, they saw their enemy, the enemy saw them, their turret turned, our turret turned, they got the shot off faster. And I'm thinking to myself, that sounds familiar. <laughs> like, Sorry, guys, that was me. The only time I fired off a simulation round, it was to light up four of my brothers in arms. They had become victims of friendly fire. You know, I'd put a high explosive flaming dart right into the back of my buddies. Again, this is just laser tag. It wasn't the real thing. Um, friendly fire. Have you ever been the victim of friendly fire? At church, I think that hurts the most, sometimes even more than a flaming dart from the enemy would. But in every circumstance, even if your brother or sister has got their knife embedded in your back, God is your protector. He is your refuge. And the shield of faith puts out all the flaming darts because we have a God whose mercy is new every day. He is gracious and just to forgive us when we let him down, and because we are his soldiers, we are trained and we are ready to ask and offer forgiveness among our own ranks. Now, Because of this forgiveness, in this battle we are in, there is no reason why friendly fire ever needs to be fatal. In fact, we can heal into something that's even stronger than before if we look to the one who forgives us and humbly ask and accept forgiveness from one another. It says in Ephesians 6.16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. It says all. All of our trials, all of our difficulties can bring about our growth, our maturity, even the circumstance of betrayal. Now through faith, it all works together for our good when we are surrendered to God's purposes. Satan wants to use a hard circumstance like that to tempt us to burn it all down. But God uses that same hard circumstance to test us for our growth. God tests for our growth. Satan, he tempts towards our destruction. Same circumstances, two paths. So your faith or your lack of faith in God's purposes will tell you which way to go. We have one path that leads to destruction and one path that leads to growth. The course you are on is determined by faith. So do you have a faith that God is a God over all circumstances, even the hard ones? If you do, walking in that difficult truth, that's what can extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy. Now, in the months to come, after we finish Ephesians, we're going to be moving through the book of Acts, and that chronicles the birth of the early church. And I feel like this particular time in in faith church's history right here in Waterville, we're entering into a new phase. Um, So it's especially appropriate to look to the principles in the book of Acts to shape how we do ministry here in Waterville. So we'll be taking a close look at the life of the church 
things like the church breaking bread together, uh, their devotion to prayer and to teaching, and their generosity towards one another. You know, those are all characteristics of the church in Acts. But when we read on through the rest of the New Testament, those golden days, the halcyon days of the early church, they don't last very long. The church encounters some very serious and traumatic growing pains. Uh, the church of Jerusalem, they experience racial exclusion, uh, backbiting, gossip, snobbery. Uh, the church of Corinth was essentially a dumpster fire of sexual immorality and, and um, pride. And there were false teachers and idolatry. Was, that was all taking root in Galatia. And in Philippi, things got so bad between two sisters in the faith that Paul had to call them out by name in his letter to the church. And I expect that we'll have growing pains here as well. But we are going to have real-life opportunities to be ready with the gospel of peace. Not just peace for those out there, but the gospel of peace for those within the walls of the church. We are going to have a chance to offer peace towards each other. So we're going to have to take up our well-prepared shields of faith, link them together and have each other's back and step forward, planting our feet firmly in the confidence, knowing that we have peace with God so that we can move forward in his mission, the mission he's given us, the ministry of reconciliation, which he has called each and every one of us to. So let's close our time in prayer. Let's speak to God and let's ask for his continued grace to do battle. Let's pray. God, thank you that we can have peace with you, Lord. God, thank you for the righteousness of Christ that is offered in our place. God, thank you that we can withstand the attacks of the enemy because Christ never sinned. God, thank you for giving us that. God, thank you um, that we can be ready with the gospel of peace, that our feet are firmly shod and equipped with those cleats that help us to press in, that help us to move forward, Lord. God, we we also ask for comfort, Lord, for uh, for sweet Bernadette's family, Lord, during this time of mourning. God, we, we thank you um, for the time we had with her, Lord. We thank you for the promise of what's to come uh, when we leave this body behind and step into your presence. We thank you that we will not be met with wrath, but with welcome, Lord because of what Christ did. God, we, we praise you uh, for what you're doing here in this church. God, keep us mindful of the battle that we are in. God, help us to support one another um, and encourage one another and, and help equip each other, Lord, to face this battle so that you may be glorified, Lord, and your kingdom would expand. God, we ask these things in your name. Amen.